Welcome to EdPod, connecting educational research and classroom teaching with Drs. Eric Claraval and Darren Battaglia. Episode 5, Educational Data Mining and Learning Analytics. Hello, Eric. Hi, Darren. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. What about you? I'm doing okay. And this podcast that we're going to record is a little bit challenging for me. I would say that in preparing for this podcast, I have had a steep learning curve. However, in preparing for this podcast, I've also learned that I use that phrase incorrectly. Okay. Tell me more about that. That will be the... uh, I'll just let that sit out there and we'll get back to how the phrase learning curve is actually should be applied, but it's part of learning analytics. Okay. So what is learning analytics and how is this relevant to the current article that we're discussing? So, yeah, so it's it's something that I've been thinking about for um, really a long time now and I've been really been interested in, but it's so hard to, to crack this, to crack open. I think for people like us who are classroom teachers, because it's something so dense. And even when you and I were doing our doctorate, this is a field that is is new. It's really only been around for, I would say, less than 10 years. As I was you know, doing this research, the um, Journal for Educational Data Mining was only uh, begun, I think, in 2009 or something like that. And there is another journal and that is for learning analytics that was begun around the same time. So, in fact, the professional organizations themselves, which codify a lot of this work, don't haven't been around that long. Both of these are um, fields that spring from much of the work that's done in other fields like medicine and finance and so mm-hmm. forth. So when I was reading this article, I, I keep on going back to this idea of my own understanding of data mining, where you have a, a bunch of numbers right in front of you collected by other people and tabulated it online and and you're mining the data by but you're using the data to answer certain hypotheses that you just posted related to a specific topic that you're investigating on so for example academic achievement gap between English language learners and the general education population. And there is plethora of, of data that is available publicly online. And that's my whole idea of data mining. And so when I was reading this article, I was thinking and baffled by how is data mining relevant to to science assessment? I guess because I think data mining applies to not just where data comes from, it, sort of a, a philosophy that how, it, how we're applying and using data, but also the tools that researchers are using when it comes to um, looking at educational research. It's a little bit different from some of the um, more traditional uses of statistics. Uh So before we get too far, things I'll be talking about today are from 
a actually from a book chapter that I found online by Ryan Baker and George Siemens called mm -hmm. Educational Data Mining and Learning Analytics. Mm -hmm. It's from a book called Learning Analytics, uh, published in 2014, and I put the link in the show notes. Okay. So we've got two things, and, and, and I, I'll use them interchangeably, I know, because I wasn't quite clear also on the difference, but data mining is essentially knowledge discovery between databases. It involves these new methods that look for relationships that exist in data that might be available to test prior hypotheses, but might also uh, show us relationships that we didn't know existed through such methods as machine learning and, and um, artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So data miners essentially are more interested in, in automating applications to support the learners themselves and maybe changing user experiences in, in applications and other software. Whereas people who, researchers who um, work in learner at learning analytics, I think are the more typical, uh, traditional researchers we think of when we think of those prescriptive and uh, predictive uses of data. When I say uh, predictive, we think of how we're going to use data to predict which students won't do well in the course, which students might not graduate from high school, which students will struggle with certain concepts. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, prescriptive part, what kinds of supports or interventions we'll need for those students. So, so this article written by Goldberg, Kim, Sal Pedro, Kennedy, and Bretz applied the concept of educational data mining to the assessment of scientific knowledge and, and procedure. Which I think is is a, a really innovative way of of um, rethinking how we assess um, scientific knowledge and um, procedural knowledge. The the common assessment method that we use in a classroom is through multiple choice, and so I thought this this article is is a really innovative in a sense that. It really captures the 21st century learning skills, and and one of those skills is to you know being or having critical mind and and developing that critical thinking in in the classroom. Yeah, for inquiry, and it, it was really nice that the article they set, they set that up, starting with the um, I think it was the Next Generation Science Standards, and, and as the construct for the test, and if inquiry is such an important part of those standards, how will they in fact be able to measure standards like that with tests that are uh, multiple choice or, mm -hmm. or more of the straightforward test? So then by by creating tests where students have to, um, in, in a sense, it's a performance-based task, but one that um, uses lots of different signals on the task that can be um, analyzed in a very different way than we might typically think. You know, when I when I was um, reading the second page of the article, I kept on referring to my own interest in history and how, how we assess his, historical knowledge through multiple choice. And that's just, just similar critique that this article wanted to post. Through the use of educational data mining, 
provides a greater authenticity of doing science. And it's the same thing as, you know, when you use, when you provide primary and secondary sources to students and, and giving them the opportunity to, to do what historians do and to create that historical knowledge. I think there's a lot of questions that researchers could ask in different ways with new tools. Right. Uh, that we, you know, might not normally think of. Um, you know, the interesting thing about that article by Gobert was that they, you know, set up a new, I mean, they, they started with a different test construct. They uh, set up and collected data specifically for this study, as opposed to what you were saying earlier, which was relying on publicly available data sets or data sets that might be proprietary, but not collected, uh, were already available in some way. This, this set was uh, trying to understand about process learning um, for the research itself. But, but there is already an available data before the students start thinking about creating their experiment. They're just manipulating it through the use of interface, computer interface, and and different variables that that are that are um, available for them, right? I suppose there was, but most of the data there was the log data itself from the uh, computer computerized environment mm -hmm. that was part of the research, part of the uh, experiment. So when I think of um, one of the things that was kind of striking to me as I was going about this was thinking about the way that data itself and student data has changed since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, and I, there was just a uh, movie that I was watching the other day um, about uh, with Lady Bird. And, it, and there's a part of the movie Lady Bird where the main actress, she steals the teacher's grade book off uh -huh. of his desk. And this takes place, I think, in the early 2000s. And so she steals the teacher's grade book off of his desk and throws it away. So he's forced to reconstruct all of his grades. And of course, she tells him that he had a higher grade. She had a higher grade than he really did. But it made me think about the types of data that is, are really available now, readily available at the school district level. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, or even when I first started teaching, all my grades as a teacher were only available to me. It was on paper. You know, when I then it was kind of on a personal Excel spreadsheet, but it just lived very closely. But now, right. every single grade, the number of points it has, the value, the category it is in my grading book, it's all available throughout the school district. Every individual student can see their own grades. The parents can see it. And so the, just the sheer amount of data through the grade book the student information system, attendance, student demographic data, um, the types of assessment I make myself, the number of assessments, all of it can be compared. Uh, transcripts, special ed data, 504 data, it's all computerized now. And just to think of that explosion of information that can be studied in a way that wasn't possible just a few years ago. And I think we've only just begun in our own field to um, find ways and tools to be able to uh, manipulate and understand a little bit more about what we're doing. We hear every day about using data to make decisions, but we're only using a small percentage of the data that's generated and available. So let's go back to this assessment 
that they created. I see that this is this is a really interesting um, assessment because it it creates this whole sense that the students can uh, develop their own hypothesis and manipulate the different variables, which is what a science a scientific method is is you know when you observe and gather data and you manipulate variables and see what's going to happen. So how is educational data mining implicated in, in this process? So what I understood, it's the way that they are analyzing it. Uh, if you get to the uh, data analysis method, mm -hmm. it's both the way they're collecting it and the way they're analyzing it. So, so this figure, in figure one, in the article, there's this really interesting graphic representation uh, with charts and a picture and it shows you different variables that they can manipulate and then there's at the bottom of that picture there there's like a table of data so i think that table is the screenshot of the students themselves uh -huh. what they're able to manipulate the data that they're able to take mm -hmm. if you look on the next page or two pages down they have a decision tree uh -huh. that shows um part of the the, the data that um is taken and analyzed of the students themselves. And I think a decision tree is one of the statistical tools that is used by uh, educational data miners uh -huh. um, as, a, as, as a way of understanding information. So I think that's one. I think the other way is itself, if you, to go back to the, um, the student view, they mentioned that the the log data consists of things like how many times they pause the simulation, the changes they make in the simulation, mm -hmm. uh, the number of repeated trials, the number of actions they took. All of that information was logged while the students uh, ran the simulations themselves and were variables that could be included in the end, in, in those end calculations to determine whether students um, were successful in understanding uh, scientific inquiry or not. So I mm -hmm. think it's the type of data that's chosen, the format it's uh, collected in, as well as some of the statistical packages mm -hmm. that are used and the statistical methods. Okay, um, I, I think this is a promising well, and innovative way of assessing students' critical thinking and ability to um, to to test their hypothesis using an existing data. But my, my question is that how how are you gonna teach them with this? And, and how is how is the bridging of, of teaching and this assessment? I, mean, I think something like this can give us information of whether students are being successful in scientific inquiry or not. Mm -hmm. Is your concern that it doesn't give us enough uh, sort of qualitative information about students uh -huh. and where they're where they might be having problems in understanding. Yeah. Right. And where did... You well, know, that could be the what, same for any kind of quantitative analysis, though. For example, I'm, I'm worried about some of the vocabulary words that, that, are, that are used in this kind of assessment. For example, um, producers, consumers, and decomposers. I'm assuming that when you provide this kind of assessment, the students have already have the prior knowledge of what producers are and what do consumers do and 
what is the pro what is the process of decomposition and who are these decomposers i i think without knowing too much about the actual assessment we we don't know what's been done before or after this particular tutoring system was put into place it's hard it's hard for us to say i mean that might be a result of the of this of this experiment anyways is that students didn't have the requisite background knowledge to be uh -huh. successful but i mean this might be i mean this is just one example too i've i've got some other examples of tools that that might be useful would you like to hear a few sure so um some of the things that um educational data mining is used for is text mining this I think is really common. Um, I can, rec and, and it, this is something that reminded me a lot of the um, you know, corpus linguistics, like the academic word list, which was created you know years ago by Avril Coxhead from New Zealand. I don't know if that is along the same lines, but there's a lot of tools that are available online. And as a matter of fact, there's one called the Co Matrix, and it's used to assess. Uh, skills in in reading I actually took the article that uh, we read Gobert and I put the first 15,000 characters into it to take a look at the results and there was a lot of information I have to admit some of it it would take me a while to really decipher some of the uh, linguistic information semantic information that it um, gave me but I mean it gave me that basic uh, linguistic information you see in Microsoft Word, like the Flesh Kincaid readability right. level. It also told me um, about the average word length, the number of syllables per word, the syntactical complexity, age of acquisition for content mm -hmm. words. I'd never even heard that one. Wow. Other things. Is, is this is this um, is this a free software? This one is. This one is um, something that is a online resource. So it's only for fifteen for the first fifteen thousand characters. Though there's a number of them that are very similar. They all are different types of text mining that I think a K-12 educator could think of and with the oral communication of students, the written communication of students, and also the text that we give students. It's all the might reason make why for I some that interesting information. It's, it's, you know, one of my interests is morphology. Right. And, and, and with my other colleagues, we are planning on analyzing different textbooks as as far as how how many how much morphologically complex words are there in 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 social studies and science and math there can, are can, can I, I yeah. can use that software yeah i think that there are a few of them which uh require subscriptions mm -hmm. um but this one was free but only accepts fifteen thousand characters which is only you know, six pages of text. Uh -huh. So for the for the ones that are um, for your needs, you might need to pay, but they um, right. they all have free trials too. So they were, but, I, I didn't try them, but they might be very interesting for somebody who has that kind of need like you. Another thing that is might be useful is social network analysis. Social network analysis is looks at just like what it sounds like the relationships between the individuals. You can think of how we're all related by a Mm -hmm. uh, web. What I think of about this, what would be fascinating is how groups are either effective or ineffective. There's so much emphasis now when we do, you know, group work, we always have to do group work, but uh -huh. some just aren't groups just aren't any good. Um, 
And so it'd be interesting to know why they aren't good. You know, behaviors change, social network analyses, look at communication between individuals and how different actors in the learning community might change over time. So another thing that learning analytics can help you with is to look at and to try to understand how students are learning and how fast students are learning. That would be to look at the learning curve of student achievement. Now, I mentioned that because at the beginning of this, I didn't know really what, I'd never thought what a learning curve really was, but a learning curve, I mean, it's a thing, it's a real thing. I'd never thought about it, but a learning curve is essentially the achievement measured over time. If you learn a lot, the achievement moves up the y-axis. And if you learn a lot over just a little bit of time, that's essentially what a steep learning curve is. But we use the term, I'm on a steep learning curve, not to mean I've learned a lot, but to mean something is very difficult, not not great achievement in a short time. Right. So you're able to achieve something in a short time. Yeah, essentially a steep learning curve just means, you know, really is, it's a great achievement in a short time. It doesn't necessarily indicate difficulty or not. And and when you, when we analyze learning though, we do want something of a, of a learning curve that is, you know, adequate. There's got to be some sort of optimum, optimum learning curve. We don't want it flat because if we have flat learning, it means students, people aren't learning. Students aren't learning. They're staying constant in their knowledge. We do want it to increase, but not... Be, we don't want to try to increase it so much that it becomes frustration, right? We, we want, there, there is sort of an optimal rate of learning. And, and in the same manner, we don't want that very steep learning curve because we don't know if, if the child understands a specific, you know, yes. concept or skills. So there should be like in between. There is a certain rate, yes. Like an ideal. So I think that, you know, as we move forward, I think there's ways that, this is going to impact teacher practice. When I think about, you know, what I read, it's going to impact teacher practice on student engagement in many ways. We're going to know if students are are learning based upon engagement with materials, with coursework, with um, delivery systems. You know, data mining is going to give us much more information in the future in all of these. We talk about persistency in school. Even now, the best measures of uh, whether students are going to graduate from high school are, are only able to predict about 60% with 60% accuracy of, college, of high school graduates. I mean, there should be measures now if we can use even more signals that are going to get us closer um to are, are going to give us greater accuracy. So you you're talking about the macro education. No, I think even coursework is is a benefit for the classroom teacher. Now, of course, I mean the I'm talking about two things. The first thing I said was a uh, was that feedback for a teacher. If we can get that close that feedback loop and give it to an individual teacher, you know, a classroom teacher, right. that that will happen. If I'm giving a course, even a classroom, you know, in in my own classroom and I can know either who's coming in and has deficiencies or who might struggle with certain components of of teaching um, graphing lines because of certain precursors or while I'm teaching the course, if I know certain students haven't done a certain um, uh, part of the homework or they've done poorly on a certain 
part of the assessment. They're not tracking me while I teach. Um, the conversations are. So this is that's that's exactly my interest here is that uh, through data mining, through educational data mining, teachers are able to mm -hmm. visualize how students think and, and how they're able to to represent their critical thinking through the data that is showing. I think it's on, going to, I mean, two things are going to happen, are going to need to happen. One is it's going to take time to push this in, down into classrooms. It's going to come first in through, you know, district offices, through the types of um, mm -hmm. analysis of, uh, you know, statewide testing and those connections between statewide testing and other student information systems. Once it comes there, through there, I think little by little, we'll make it out to the classroom teacher. But the systems have to, you know, be, you know, the data has to be cleaned. It's got to be in a certain format, and it's got to be made easier. And also, we folks who work in K twelve need to be able to understand it. Finally, I think we also have to be more comfortable because the more we are willing to uh, open up to the research of educational data mining and the use of data mining to improve you know, our, our school systems, the faster this will happen. I mean, I, I could imagine, you know, if we right. were to turn over um, not just the school information that we have, the academic information, but if we were also to include the social network information that we have about students, we might really know a lot more about how to engage them academically. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but it could be a very powerful predictor of all kinds of things that go on in a school. And especially, you know, in the era of accountability, this is really an important way of, of assessing students' understanding. You know, as we go back to the article where they created this assessment of um, critical thinking in the area of science. And with that, Mr. Eric. Thank you very much. And it's, uh, it, it's something that I, I, I learned something new today. And, and I, I think my learning curve in terms of data mining and educational data mining is a little bit slow, but eventually I'm going to be able to catch up. Sounds great. I always learn something when I talk with you. All right. So I'll talk to you then. You can find links to articles we discussed on this episode and more in our show notes at edpod.tv. You'll also find other information about us and upcoming topics, as well as how to contact the show. Of course, you can find us on Twitter at RealEdPod. Thanks for listening. Thank you.